Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. We would like to welcome you back or welcome you. This is the, the first time you're joining us this afternoon to this wonderful celebration in conjunction with the University of California, San Diego's 50th anniversary celebration, the Center for U.S.-Mexico Studies and the School of International Relations and Pacific Studies welcomes you to this wonderful celebration and open dialogue on Mexico's future. Continuing on with our panels today, we're moving on to the science and environment. So um, let me begin by introducing our panel. We have on my, uh, your, your, (laughs) Rodolfo Dirso, the world-renowned ecologist and botanist and director of the Dirso Lab at Stanford University. Thank you. Thank you. Hello. Ezequiel Escurra, the internationally renowned plant ecologist and director of the University of California Institute for Mexico and the United States. And Eduardo Santana, internationally recognized environmental scholar, co-founder of numerous environmental agencies and organizations, and the recipient of the 2010 Mexican National Environmental Merit Award. Please welcome our panel. And also Alexander Sasha Hershunov, climatologist from the Scripps Institution of Oceanography at UC San Diego. He's going to be making a presentation on Colorado River climate change, Western water, and the U.S. and Mexico. Please welcome. Gracias, Laura. Muchas cosas en cinco minutos. Buenas tardes, camaradas. Sasha is a nickname for Alejandro, where I come from. This is a place where they speak like this. About uh, 25 centuries ago, there was a name a man by the name of Heraclitus who uh, uh, developed, a, developed a philosophy uh, that was centered around uh, the concept of change as uh, essential to uh, the nature of all things. And he's the one that's uh, credited with the saying that you cannot step into the same river twice. Um, probably Charles Darwin was also thinking along these same lines uh, when he said uh, something to the effect that uh, uh, it's not necessarily the strongest or uh, uh, the most intelligent, but the ones most adaptable to change uh, that are most likely to survive. Um, well, this uh, river, the Colorado, um, is, uh, uh, is what brings most of the fresh water to the southwestern United States and northwestern Mexico. Uh, and uh, it's one of the most uh, engineered and over-allocated and harnessed rivers in the world. Uh, it is not allowed to change. According to the uh, Colorado River Compact, signed in um, about 90 years ago now, uh, basically, uh, these gents that signed the Colorado River Compact, they allocated uh, about 60.5 million acre feet to the upper and lower Colorado uh, basins, uh, and of that, they left about 1.5 uh, 
million acre feet for, the, for Mexico, for the Delta, basically, which uh, used to be uh, a remarkable and thriving ecosystem that's now reduced to about, well, for a long time now, to about 5% of its former magnitude. Um, basically, they, they, they based their estimation on of, uh, how much water the Colorado yields um, on um, observations of uh, a few decades, a couple of decades that happened, that were available to them, that happened uh, to be taken over a very uh, wet period uh, in the Southwest. Uh, and uh, they didn't bother asking the Indians about the history of the river, but uh, even though the river is not supposed to change, it changes all the time. Um, it goes through cycles of uh, wet periods followed by drought, um, and uh, uh, lately uh, the drought side of, uh, of the cycle uh, is being more and more accentuated by uh, global warming, uh, as I will show you. The Colorado River is fed by, mostly by snowmelt from uh, the Rocky Mountains. Um, and as you can see on that plot uh, on the upper left, especially springtime, but all seasons, but especially springtime, uh, has seen a very strong warming trend that has been unequivocally shown uh, to be mostly related to global warming. As the region warms, uh, something important happens to the snow. The, the storms that, that usually bring snow uh, become warm enough that they rain instead of snow, uh, instead of producing snow. And so, unfortunately, you, you can't see those uh, dorky plots, and maybe that's okay. But we observe a signal uh, of decreasing snow cover uh, that goes along with this warming. It's explained by that warming uh, and a decline in the Colorado River flow that's related to that. I will just go through one, j just, just one example of, of how uh, warming affects uh, water resources of this region. Um, and basically, well, as I just explained to you, I ran a little bit ahead of myself. But, you know, in, instead of snow, the lower elevations get more and more rain, less and less snow. That changes the dynamics of the river, and uh, it basically uh, um, is one of the things that contributes to, to the drying of the Colorado. There are many different consistent signs of this uh, regional climate change that's driven by global warming, including uh, reduced snowpack, uh, a strong warming, especially in the springtime, uh, and basically a, a strong trend uh, in the ratio of snow to rain. Uh, and this uh, slide is uh, uh, by a colleague and friend of mine, Noah Knowles, uh, where he actually took observations uh, over the last uh, five-plus decades of snow, uh, snow water equivalent, how much water is contained in the snow, uh, and rain, uh, and uh, looked at the long-term trend uh, in, um, in this ratio. And basically where you see these uh, red uh, symbols, uh, there are significant trends towards this ratio to decrease. So less snow... Uh, and more rain at the expense of snow. Uh, this is uh, clearly related to uh, uh, climate change. There have been many studies uh, done on that. Um, one of, uh, you know, 
the effect of that and other things that I don't have time to talk about here on the Colorado River uh, is that uh, the droughts are becoming more severe, more frequent, and more extreme. And that's what we expect uh, for the future. Uh, based on these uh, projections, scientists give about a 50-50 chance for Lake Mead, which is the biggest reservoir on the Colorado, uh, to go completely dry by uh, 2021. 50% chance. You know, I guess there's a 50% chance that it won't, but it will definitely be drier than it is now, and now it's at uh, close to historic level, uh, low levels. Um, we are actually in the ninth year of, uh, of a pretty severe drought, the kind of thing that uh, the Colorado River Compact people uh, did not uh, think about because they were probably blinded by utilitarian uh, thinking and, uh, um, and uh, an overdose of uh, uh, wishful thinking, I think, as well. So, uh, you know, w with this, uh, uh, basically, th this opens a whole uh, slew of, uh, of problems that, that we can expect for this region, uh, the border region being part of it, and uh, um, that it, it will affect, uh, it's already affecting uh, water resources and their allocation, environment and, and conservation, um, farming practices, energy generation, etc. So what does it uh, mean for the delta? Well, the, the delta has been dry for a long time. It, you know, uh, the trickle that there is now um, is, is very poor quality water, and there's definitely not enough of it, and there will be less. So I think for the delta, it probably means uh, that... Uh, uh, Conservation efforts uh, that a lot of people are talking about are, are less and less likely uh, to be successful in the future. Um, and uh, for Mexico, I think uh, this means that because uh, uh, Baja California gets about 50, a little over 50% of their water from this trickle that's left in the Colorado River, um, there will be less of that. Uh, eventually, and uh, so, so uh, Mexico will be forced to use water, more and more water from aquifers. Baja already uses about 30% of their water uh, comes from underground aquifers that are being depleted, uh, and there's salt water intrusion. Um, the Guadalupe Valley, the main uh, wine producing region of Mexico, uh, is in danger because of this uh, uh, decrease in the uh, in the groundwater uh, because of uh, overdrawing by by the city of uh, uh, Ensenada, also because uh, um, sand from the arroyos from the dry arroyos in the summer is being uh, dug up and sold to the United States, which exposes the wet sand underneath and and that causes the groundwater to evaporate. Um, from those exposed uh, arroyos, uh, and the other uh, things that, that are basically uh, looming environmental problems, uh, especially for uh, farming and water resources in uh, northwestern uh, Mexico. Um, we can learn, I think, a lot from Mexico because, uh, uh, because uh, uh, you know, for ex 
I, I think that at least on a, on a very personal uh, scale, uh, Mexico has uh, uh, seems to me more common sense than than the U.S. Uh, and so, for example, we can learn from Mexican farmers that uh, it doesn't really make sense uh, to grow alfalfa and potatoes in the desert. Um, we can also learn that uh, it may make sense uh, uh, to uh, grow uh, varieties of uh, vines uh, that are actually adapted to a dry climate, varieties that come uh, from Spain and uh, Italy, uh, namely uh, Tempranillo and uh, Nebbiolo, which actually can grow without irrigation uh, if the ground level, uh, groundwater level is uh, adequate. Um, and uh, uh, these will all be very useful lessons, I think. Um, and uh, I hope that we can continue and actually increase our collaboration with uh, Mexican friends and colleagues. I have a couple of pictures of my colleagues across the border, my camaradas. Uh, and maybe to learn a little bit of that uh, wonderful Mexican art of uh, uh, being more happy with less. Thank you. Good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be here, to be invited to UCSD party, so to speak. I appreciate the invitation. I'd like to speak of biodiversity and climate change. We've heard about climate change, which will allow me to speak a little bit more about biodiversity, which is far prettier than the horrific climate change derived from greenhouse gases. I think that it is pertinent to say that biodiversity represents Mexico's natural museum of uh, natural history, so to speak, or of nature. There are various facets that we should consider of biodiversity. In the case of countries such as Mexico, it's not limited to the richness in terms of species, but includes other things as well. Let's start off with this subject, though, uh, the richness of species. No mathematical models here, though. Let's talk about vascular plants, which uh, currently uh, predominate. There are approximately 25,000, oh, rather, there are rather 250,000 species worldwide, 10% of which are 25,000 species of fauna are found in Mexico and about the same percentage as it pertains to mammals, birds, and butterflies. 10% of the world's species are found in Mexico, which is truly significant. We also have biodiversity in terms of the richness or diversity in ecosystems, and let me uh, tell you about that. This map gives you an idea of the complex topography, topography uh, and otherwise which exists in Mexico. Practically all the ecosystems to be found on Earth 
may be found in the square kilometers which Mexico encompasses. Now let's refer a little bit to the artistic, cultural, and pretty aspects of it. Let's take a look at these images. These are from the most arid to the most exuberant deserts found in Mexico, also temperate forest ecosystems, which are reminiscent of Russia and the coniferous trees. We also can find the seasonally dry tropical forests during the dry season, as seen on the left, similar to uh, desert-like conditions, and then becoming a diverse uh, sort of rainforest area. Here are our tropical forest ecosystems, the Amazonian in Mexico's southeast, and then in the higher altitudes, scenarios akin to the Andes. If we take a look altitudinally from high to low in Mexico, we can find protection uh, barriers in coastal zones, which are known as mangrove forests. Higher altitudes approach alpine ecosystems. Basically, all the world's significant ecosystems are found in Mexico, which is not the case for anywhere else, really. Now let's talk about endemic life forms, which only are found in this region. This is, I hope, not very complicated to look at as a chart, but it shows us that it varies from one ecosystem to the next. Approximately 50% of Mexico's plant species are only found in Mexico. Let me show you some examples. I'd be delighted to spend hours showing you many, many, but let me just show you two or three. We have a kind of very important uh, species off to the right, genes that lead to its not dying really upon the moment of death. Just imagine if that uh, were the case for other species. On the left hand, or rather, we also have the salamandra, and we'll see what Sebastian might be inspired to create. See here, this is found in um, ecology books. This is a salamander. It's endemic to Oaxaca. Look at it in comparison to a normal salamander, 15 centimeters length. Maybe you could create a monumental work of this microscopic salamander. So this is the smallest tetrapod which exists on planet Earth. It's endemic to Oaxaca. And herein lies your inspiration. This is the cranium, three centimeters long, which must accommodate brain, eyes, and so forth. Truly fascinating and not found elsewhere. We spoke of the monarch butterfly site as a phenomena endemic to Mexico. I referred to the migratory phenomena. I know you all may have seen it on the Discovery Channel. We all think it's fantastic, the most beautiful site on the world. Unfortunately, I must tell you, and I always do so to bother my friends from Michoacan, it's the most horrific place on the planet because thanks to the, its uh, interaction with plants, 
In fact, they eat some poisonous plants, and when they become adults, they carry with them cardiac glucoside. So that beautiful butterfly then becomes nothing more than flying packages of poison which affect the cardiac function. These are unknown but very significant phenomena which exist in our country. Let's go from... uh, Uh, endemic species to agrobiodiversity in homage to what Rafael mentioned, the culture between the uh, connection between culture and this ecological uh, treasure chest. Imagine marvelous things have been achieved and I'm going to refer to some examples. This example may be our most significant contribution to the earth, which is corn maize. This, as you can see, maize, corn, and cultures in different parts of the world have transformed it with truly unsuspected diversity. There are approximately 7,000 different species of plants where the cultures in the various locations have found a particular use for. These are some of the most well-known, but there are 7,000. There you have the link between culture and biodiversity. Now then, reaching the third and almost last part of my presentation, how does one link biodiversity and climate change? Complex, maybe, but I'd like to show you with this image. Thank God you can't see it well, really, because it's really quite terrible. This represents the destruction of rainforest, and you can see the gases which are being emitted into the atmosphere contributing to climate change. When that occurs, the tremendous biodiversity which existed, thousands of species, disappears. So in Mexico, for example, its deforestation, which tended to be horrific, could be rectified if we reduce the destruction of habitats, we reduce the creation of uh, greenhouse effects, and we conserve biological diversity. Let me conclude with a tremendous challenge. Um, And here again, I touch upon climate change. Climate change is barely one of several global changes in our habitat. As you know, it may be the sexier of all topics, but it's not really the only one. And I don't believe it's necessarily the most important one. Particularly, climate change is potentially reversible. If, for example, if we really to put our minds to it, we would be able to reverse it somewhat. However... Land use change um, in terms of biodiversity is the most critical factor in terms of biological extinction. And if there's one important message I wish to convey with you, it is that change in biodiversity, the loss of biodiversity because of climate change, is the only change which is truly irreversible. And if that's happen, if that happens goodbye forever as compared to climate change. Now, what have we in Mexico tried to achieve? 10% of the world's global biodiversity exists in Mexico. It is obviously a privilege, but a serious responsibility. Several positive things have been effective derived from the Biodiversity National Council as thousands of projects, one of which very specifically I will mention. Since 1992, it has decided to collect information pertaining to any known species. Specific identity 
no mistake, second, the geographic location. Once that's incorporated into the database, and today it's over 5 million, million species, just imagine the work that entailed. Marvels can be achieved in terms of focusing on national challenges. For example, this is a very innocent little mouse. It's called uh, Peromiscus. It transmits a hantavirus. With this database that I mentioned, we can generate models to define areas of low, mid, or high probability in terms of risk of transmission of this pathogen by the species, knowing exactly how the species is distributed throughout the country. Another example has to do with GMOs, genetically modified uh, organisms. Here we see a uh, particular kind of cotton that has been genetically modified. And we can define in what areas permission can be given or not to introduce this and reduce the threat of affecting the Earth's biodiversity. I want to conclude with some comments uh, regarding why I am hopeful, notwithstanding some negative uh, scenarios, and how we're looking at some things in Mexico and outside. First, we have tremendous biodiversity, but also tremendous tradition in terms of studying it and its importance to society. Secondly, we have outstanding schools and research institutions, which represent an enormous potential in terms of the need of creating or forming human capital in terms of youth and adolescence. Then we have fantastic management of uh, or indigenous management we have examples of how to conserve this and we could speak of this a little bit later on lastly a significant culture of collaboration exists within mexico and also with other countries or regions and this significant collaboration is also ideally represented here, the collaboration between Mexico and California, particularly with the link to the UC system, UC Mexis, is a fantastic demonstration of what can be achieved and what we might achieve in the future if we work together. Recently, I decided to head the uh, Center of Latin American Studies at Stanford, and I am really trying to foster this joint collaborative effort to focus on issues that ultimately will lead us to be hopeful and happy about the U.S.-Mexico uh, relationship as well as our relationship with the rest of the world. Thank you. Esa interacción, ese trabajo en conjunto para atacar problemas que nos hagan sentirnos felices y esperanzados eh, con la relación entre México, Estados Unidos y México y el planeta. Gracias. Gracias, señores. Escurra. Muchísimas gracias. Ese, la primera foto está intencionalmente en negro pero por alguna razón no, sí, sí se pone roja pero no hay reacción no, la, bueno some of you quite possibly last week uh, 
uh, and this due to an overhead which Rodolfo showed us, which really is a good segue for what I want to say. Last week there was a bit of a scandal in Mexico. The BBC, also responsible for producing rather dumb programs, where there was a program called Top Gear, and the host defined Mexican food as refried vomit covered with melted cheese. Irrespective of what one might think of the hosts, which are referring to a country in this fashion, the first thing which came to my mind, a quote from uh, an Argentinian writer, the Masolo Martinez, who, who unfortunately passed away about a year ago, at a meeting one of the uh, East Coast cities where Mexico was being discussed, someone also made a derogatory remark, and Tomás Eloy Martínez said, don't scorn Mexico, at least it has a cuisine. The phrase is not only humorous, it's, it's profound, because... A national cuisine, Monica, and what a fabulous presentation, uh, yours and other presentations, but I was delighted to see Mexico's gastronomy included as part of its culture because it's a synthesis of many things, how we utilize our environment, how we take advantage of natural resources, how we have our foodstuffs, how we interact in a family, how we move about socially, etc., etc. Well, this country, which according to the BBC, program house has people who are passionate for eating uh, less than tasty food. Well, this country produces 30% of the corn, if not more, that we consume, tomato, chile, uh, squash, uh, cocoa beans, and I could continue up until I listed 7,000 plants, as uh, was mentioned. There is no other country in the world that has provided such a tremendous legacy to agriculture and the tradition of the human species. This is the true dimensionality of Mexico. It's important to state it and understand it within the context of environmental sciences because it allows us to understand the long-standing tradition in Mexico, which predates which the the arrival of the Spaniards in the New World. And it is a tradition which has also been manifested not only in an extremely sophisticated and rich agriculture, but also in the area of science, which is something few people are aware of. The image you have in front of you illustrates uh, the expedition of a marvelous Mexican, and I'm very sad to say in Mexico, many, many people think it's a street name, Mariano Mocino, uh, mis mixed race, uh, first language Nahuatl from Mexico City, who learned botany in Mexico's university, Mexico City's university, and he convinced the viceroy to give him a ship to travel all the way up to Alaska, which back then was called Nutka, and he wrote a book called News from Nutka. He produced the first map of San Diego Bay, the first map of the Bay of San Francisco as well. He discovered for the first time the California quail and some two or 300 additional species in California were first known to science through Mariano Mocino's uh, trip which was completed in about uh, 1858, give or take. 
When university students hear this, they say, we had no idea that Mexico had science. Mexico did so before many other countries, even the U.S., might have had them. Mexico's civilization encompassed world-known, world-renowned scientists. So Mexican science comes from a long-standing history where, above all, environmental sciences have been the focus. And now... I am going to say, as a sort of an aside, within this tradition, I'm quite fortunate to work for U.S.-Mexico, which Rodolfo mentioned, the University of California Institute for Mexico in the United States, which supports young Mexican and American students who wish to uh, have uh, exchange programs in order to become more familiar with each other's countries and with each other. It's, It's not... Uh, only an ad for UC Mexico because that would take hours. But in fact, this person, many of you in Mexico might know, Dr. Arturo Gomez Pompa, a botanist of tremendous international stature, who was one of U.S. Mexico's directors at the beginning, who really imbued it with its trajectory. And now, Efraín Fernández X, we're going to leave him for the moment. Arturo Gómez Pompa became famous for quite a few things, but one of the most significant was the publication of an article in uh, 1973 in Science Magazine called The Tropical Rainforest, a Non-Renewable Resource, much before, 30 years before, one might become concerned with the loss of the Amazon, the the forests, the greenhouse effects, much before that, Arturo Gómez Pompa, for the first time, showed the world that the loss of rainforests was a significant issue for the Earth. Back then, this individual was a renowned botanist, Efraín Fernando Chilocotzi, who was the father of quite a number of things. He produced the most detailed map of vegetation in Mexico, the father of the science which brings together indigenous social sciences and knowledge with botany and natural sciences uh, for Mexico. Back then, he was this very uh, curious individual with glasses. Dr. Cesar Ocan was completing his doctor, the first researcher when he was uh, completing his doctor in Gales or Wales. He uh, decided to revolutionize the knowledge of plant ecology in terms of forest management, forestry, how to deal uh, with weeds, how to um, move forward and cultivate or or manage harvest. He created uh, vegetable-related uh, studies whose effect is felt today as one of the most tremendous um, discoveries in science in the 20th century. And then we have an entomologist who worked with Beetles that eat excrement. I'm sorry, it's true. He unexpectedly all of a sudden entered into an alliance with the UN programs for man 
and biosphere. And he, along with Francesco Di Castro of Venetian, brought to Mexico the idea that national parks were insufficient to protect what we wanted to protect, that we must protect uh, natural areas with the indigenous peoples inside, and that it was as important to protect the environment as the natural uses of the environment and the culture linked to the environment in order to preserve it. Today, this is a commonly used language, but in 1973, it was unspoken of, and he was the first in a very rupture-based format, was able to generate this revolution in science. Uh, And before I continue to the next um, subject, I want to say that those of us who are behind ecology in Mexico, who work in in environmental natural sciences in Mexico, come from a long line of outstanding scientists uh, in whose tradition Rodolfo Dirz followed myself as well, a little younger, Eduardo Santana, too. Mexico has been a country that during centuries, more than decades, has had naturalists, scientists, world-class, which uh, are commented upon with great admiration. Now, let me sort of really respond to Alberto Diaz-Galleros. He asked me to speak of climate change, but uh, and I apologize. I felt I must uh, refer to it. This is a satellite image of the Gulf of California, where I have worked for practically my entire life. It's the same image, but where you see uh, ocean and earth, it's black. The different colors indicate the ocean surface temperature derived from oceanographic studies. And you can see how, as Rodolfo showed us with the biodiversity, you can see underwater the richness in terms of ecosystems in the Gulf of California, one of the most biodiverse ocean, if not the most biodiverse ocean in the world, and one in which I've been working for many years. In 1974 to 73, rather, very curious incidents occurred along the coast of the Gulf of California. While we had our friends thinking about endobotany and the demographics of plants, the protection of rainforests, this individual here, which I obtained from a museum archive, decided to visit the Gulf of California Islands. And maybe, well, I don't think you will recognize him, but it's Charles Lindbergh, the aviator. He said, I'm going to visit the Gulf of California and the islands of it. And over his uh, last latter, later years, he, decided, he took a great interest in these islands. And so when he said, I'm going to get a ship, he got a hydroplane. And so this is Joseph Woodcrutch, a, a naturalist essayist, friend of Octavio Paz, who produced Baja California, Geography of Hope. I guess they're telling me goodbye. So let me just conclude with a general idea. I wanted to speak a little bit about the Gulf of California and what I really wanted to focus on, but 10 minutes have gone by. I regret it. Um, But my closing point would be that in the region of the Gulf as an ecosystem, we have immense problems in Mexico, but also through the 20, 30 years that I've been working there, we in the rainforest and many other places, we have made incredible progress in terms of our uh, conservation efforts, which we can be noted in protected areas. The islands of the 
Gulf of California is the only archipelago which does not have significant developments, golf courses or otherwise. It's truly a global gem. Thanks to the collaboration between very committed Mexican institutions as well as U.S. institutions whose long history has been one of working with Mexico and making or working together with Mexico. I believe that when one opens up the paper and, and I read with trepidation what the Arizona legislators are coming up with in a context where sometimes the binational relationship is experiences a complicated scenario. I thank you for having invited us to take part in this meeting. We have many shared successes. We have a shared responsibility. And in fact, this meeting, as Joseph Woodcrutch would have said, this is part of our geography of hope. Thank you very much. The first thing I thought was, well, is Mexico moving forward, given that that was the title of the talk? And we can, uh, to, to put that in context, I start with a slide that I always teach in my class. And it says, the richness of our natural resources is the cause of our misery due to injustice. This is at the Cusalapa indigenous community in the Sierra de Manantlán, where the Zia de Ploperenes was found, where you have... Um, open pit mining, logging of old growth trees, you have uh, overgrazing of cattle. And that sentence is a semester-long course in sustainable development. It includes all five elements of sustainability, ecological, economic, social, political, and cultural. And that's the context of my talk. So let's look at trends of Mexico. We have improved life expectancy in the past 20 years, reduced infant mortality. We have an increased literacy rate to extremely high levels. We have increasing human development index, higher than the rest of Latin America and the average of the world over the past years. We have the mean number of education of adults increasing steadily over time. We have an increased number of internet and computer use at home, not the high bars, that's television and cellular phones. It's the low bars, but they still increase. The green increases, the other one increases over time. We have an increased use of contraceptives during the past uh, 15 years. We have, except for the dip, an increasing uh, amount of exports measured in dollars or pesos. We have an increase in natural protected areas, both in marine and also in terrestrial ecosystems. We have an increased number of restored hectares of areas of sustainable natural resource production over time. And we have a number of increased facilities for managing solid residues, recycling, uh, etc. We have a decreasing growth rate in the population and a stabilizing of the population in uh, around. So do you get the gist? Mexico is moving forward. That, that's, that's the point of this. But is it moving forward fast enough? That's another issue. And if we look at Mexico for indigenous people, they're found, all these indicators are three to four to five times or half times less 
than for the general population. It's not moving forward the same way for everyone. Looking at what Rodolfo Dilfo is mentioning of the rich biodiversity of Mexico, when you look at the states that are the most important in the world for conserving ecosystem services and biodiversity, they coincide with the ones that high highest levels of human misery. So we cannot talk about conservation of ecosystem services and biodiversity if in the same sentence, the same breath, we don't talk about social justice and development. Half the population of Mexico is below the poverty line, depending on what kind of level of poverty. And we have an increase of disparity uh, between the rich and the poor. We have increasing unemployment, also steady over time. And we have one of the most endangered terrestrial ecosystems or ecoregions in the world, which is Western and Central Mexico as such. We have depletion of water tables, and we have soil erosion and loss of soil fertility. We have diminishing production of oil, which has energetic, economic, social, and environmental implications. And when you actually put money into this, which is something that uh, Ezequiel uh, developed when he was at the INE, president of the INE, we have an increasing cost measured in thousands of millions of pesos uh, of the environmental degradation in health and production, and a very insufficient expenditure. You can see how it levels off of the federal government on this. The bottom line, as of the early 1990s, the ecological footprint of Mexico exceeds its biocapacity, so it's running on a deficit. It's not the only country that's doing that. Many are. And this brings me to the context of where we are in the world, going from 7 billion that we are now to 9 billion expected in 2045, and much of this growth will occur in cities. And uh, so 75% of the world population will live in urban area in 2050. Never in the history of humankind have we been involving so many individuals in urban environments. So whether we like it or not, urban environments are the future of the world. And Mexico, as of 2005, is in the future in terms of developing world and where we're going. So this is going to be an experiment. This is really necessity is the mother of invention. And it's the cities where there are the votes, the political power, the industrial power, the financial power. The big decisions are done in the city. The future of biological diversity and of ecosystem services in wilderness areas, the future of rural landscapes will be defined in the cities. And thus, brings me to the previous talks, culture in the cities is fundamental. <clears throat> These are the future and present centers of decision-making in Mexico that will define what will happen. I'm going to go quickly. So cities are devouring landscape. And what do we propose to resolve it? We have to say something. Well, that's what we propose, basically. Dancing. Dancing. <laughs> Dancing of the muses. Basically, museums, culture, art linked to the environment. Museums for social harmony. Museums as agents of social change. Museums in Hollywood. Museums as Nobel laureates. And basically, the University of Guadalajara is developing a new urban district, a cultural center, that covers all of these things into a development, a motor, 
Remember this new era. It's called the new urban era of human history. Never before has it been called that with regards to what we're doing. There's the Telmex Auditorium. Had one million visitors last year. One of the five best auditorium in the world right now. Next. The Plaza del Bicentenario, which just opened in November, the biggest public space for meeting in the Guadalajara metropolitan area, the Performing Arts Center, which started building in November, and the Museum of Environmental Sciences. And the idea is to anchor it in the identity of Western Mexico and of Jalisco, basically, and to take what people think is Mexican is Western Mexico in terms of image, but Mexico is so rich, the North is so different from the South. But Western Mexico, its identity is that maybe it doesn't have an identity. It's an area of confluences, of mixing, of all kinds of levels. But we have mariachi, pozole, tequila. But going beyond the cliche, it's really an area that has all the landscapes in that little area, like, like what Rodolfo said, but just in, Mex- in of all the landscapes of Mesoamerica, Cultures that were no known, the Guachimontones, that predate uh, the Mayans, the Aztecs, the Olmecas, in terms of the region that they cover and how they were organized. This is new uh, information that helps bring identity to an area that people don't have it. Few people know, but all of the birds, Canadians and Americans that want to hear their songbirds in spring, they all concentrate in western Mexico during winter. So we are linked by individual birds, not species, the same individual birds in terms of conservation continent-wide, or by examples of new uh, intermunicipal levels of governance, of environmental governance, that Jalisco and Nayarit and Colima people can be proud of that have been developed there locally. But that's also our context. Bye-bye. And I'll end with just the slides a museum keep going, that basically its point is to develop community discussion about the future of the city we want. Go, go ahead until the last slide. Basically, this is the Snojeta proposal for a LEED certified museum. But the big question, go on, is basically, I think, let's stop there a second um, before. Um, It's the paradox of the 20th century that we have it today in the 21st also. Our tools are better than we are and grow faster than we do. They suffice to crack the atom, to command the tides, but they do not suffice for the oldest task in human history, to live in a piece of land without spoiling it. Aldo Leopold wrote it in 1938, and in that context, next, we can take Alta Traición from José Emilio Pacheco. No amo a mi patria. Su fulgor abstracto es inasible, pero aunque suene mal, daría la vida por diez lugares suyos, cierta gente, puertos, bosques de pino, fortalezas, una ciudad deshecha, gris, monstruosa, varias figuras de su historia, montañas y tres o cuatro ríos. Finalmente, la utopía está en el horizonte. Camino dos pasos y ella se aleja dos pasos y el horizonte se corre diez pasos más allá. Entonces, ¿para qué sirve la utopía? Para eso, sirve para caminar, caminar hacia adelante, caminar forward. Gracias. Thank you. Gracias.
Um, I would like to begin by asking you, uh, you know, we, we've heard about uh, the fear of climate change and global warming and some of the many other things that you've mentioned. Um, when, when, do, when does the scientific community uh, cross over into uh, politics by trying to encourage governments on both sides of the border, in the U.S. and Mexico, um, to take these issues seriously and to do more? Do you consider yourself activists in that sense? I devote a lot of my time to, to interact with government, uh, with people that make decision makers, with, I have to say, because we'll have some of them in the next uh, table, with uh, environmentally minded business people that in Mexico there are a number and they're really good and they're doing a difference also. Um, so yes, we devote a lot of time to, to those things. And, and very often with, uh, with uh, success. Um, I wouldn't want to talk much more, but we just went through a thing that we all call the Battle of the Mangroves, which is uh, three years ago there was an initiative to allow basically dredging and, and drying of coastal lagoons uh, in order to make hotels, because hotels bring money and they are development. And we have been working, we made a very unlikely alliance with all the way from people in business, in NGOs, and in science, bringing science to all this, to convince our lawmakers, our, our, our um, Congress people, that that is terrible for Mexico, that we will lose uh, the environmental services of mangroves that protect our coasts, that maintain our fisheries, uh, that filter uh, pollution, and that provide the society with, with livelihoods along the coast in the benefit of a couple of or a few international hotel development companies. And we, up to now, we seem to be winning the battle of the mangroves. Uh, but, but yes, we are, Rodolfo has, has left uh, large parts of his life in protecting the tropical rainforest, not only in Mexico, but in the whole of South America also, and, and he can also tell us about, about those, those battles. Are your voices being heard? Están escuchando su opinión, su voz? Do you want to go ahead? Or... That's, that's a very interesting question, actually. Just as a follow-up of what Ezekiel said, you know, in, in, in many different senses, uh, we are activists. The, the last slide that I presented, I mean, this issue of the transgenic or, the, or genetically modified organisms is a very contentious uh, political issue. If you come up with science and you can actually sort of... Uh, Inform policy, and then you write not only in the scientific papers, but also you know write in new in newspapers, and also go to schools and do public lectures about these issues. Then you want it or not, you, you start becoming an activist and, and a person who tries to move the science to those uh, kinds of things. I think that 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 is a very crucial thing. Uh, the other thing that that, um, that happens is that uh, you know. As, as time goes by for people like have the sort of uh, chronology that Ezekiel and I have, meaning getting a little bit more mature, um, you, <laughs> you t tend to feel that it's okay to publish your scientific papers, but also it's okay to do some assessments and some public statements about the situation of environment in Mexico or in the world. Uh, let me insist a little bit on this institution that I mentioned, the National Commission on Biodiversity, because it, it is a fantastic, uh, very fine institution. But one of the things that we have been doing in connection with them in the last few years, and Ezekiel is definitely involved in that, is trying to convey to the general public, uh, you know, that what we have in terms of environmental services and, and biological diversity is a natural capital. 
which you know we really need to see it as in, in a very different way, as something that is of, of value similar to uh, uh, monetary capital and also to human capital. We have a tremendous natural capital and a tremendous responsibility to do something about. So I think that uh, you know basically when you come to to a point of your career, you will have to do. Um, activism in, in very different ways because the situation is such that we need to uh, sort of have that perspective. Let me just finish my uh, comment about this and, and insist on something that was not really very transparent, at least from my own presentation. You know, um, uh, geologists talk about the history of the planet Earth giving names to the different moments of, 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 the, of the life of the Earth, you know, the Pleistocene, the Oligocene, and so on and so forth. We are now in what is called the Anthropocene. You know, the, the, the situation in which the, um, the uh, footprint of humans is so profound that we really need to see the Earth in a very different geological era where the predominant driver here is Homo sapiens. We really need to reconcile that. And we biologists are not going to be able to do it by ourselves. We need to interact with people in the social sciences and we need to interact with the other, other communities. And last, in relation to what Ezekiel said uh, of connections with, with, uh, with uh, government agencies, I, I, I totally agree with him that we have had some very successful cases. But, uh, but the thing that we have to do is not only to transmit what we know, what we want to transmit, because we're excited about transmitting those things, not only to the general public, but more specifically to that subspecies of Homo sapiens, which is called the decision makers. And so. <laughs> Thank our panelists. Rodolfo, Ezequiel, Eduardo, and Sasha. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.